The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Uh, we're going to continue through the book of Mark, and I want to make a disclaimer to the message this morning. Um, I promise you that I am going to step on a lot of toes this morning. And right now I'm stepping on my own. And if I don't step on your toes this morning, let me know after the service. Tell me what it is that I didn't say, and I'll make sure that I get it. And actually, I'm not going to be stepping on your toes. Uh, Jesus is going to be stepping on our toes this morning. Is that okay if Jesus steps on our toes? Yeah. Tradition. <clears throat> One of my favorite all-time plays is Fitter on the Roof. Or Fitter on the Roof. The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Uh, we're going to continue through the book of Mark, and I want to make a disclaimer to the message this morning. Um, I promise you that I am going to step on a lot of toes this morning. And right now I'm stepping on my own. And if I don't step on your toes this morning, let me know after the service. Tell me what it is that I didn't say, and I'll make sure that I get it. And actually, I'm not going to be stepping on your toes. Uh, Jesus is going to be stepping on our toes this morning. Is that okay if Jesus steps on our toes? Yeah. Tradition. <clears throat> One of my favorite all-time plays is Fitter on the Roof. Or Fitter on the Roof. The old guy singing the song, Tradition, because... It's all changing. It's having a hard time with the fact that the traditions that he had held to are changing. Uh, traditions defined as uh, the handing down of statements or beliefs, legends, customs, information, ways of doing things from one generation to the next. And I'll tell you, I like tradition. Nothing wrong or Actually, nothing right necessarily with tradition as long as in that tradition that we hand down, we recognize and hold to the intended purpose for which that tradition was set. When I was a kid, I, I loved, when I grew up at Little Macedonia Baptist Church out in Newton County, we had homecoming every year. Remember that? It was a great day. Usually it followed the week of revival and after church conference and there was almost a church split to decide who they would invite to come back and preach. Right. We'd have dinner on the grounds and everybody would bring a covered dish. Man, it was fun. We'd go across to the old one-room schoolhouse that was right across the street from it. You'd have a good time to eat and there were horseshoes that would be played. The kids would run around. I was one that always got in trouble on homecoming, just to let you know. But somehow through the years, that, that began to pass away, that tradition of homecoming. The culture changed and settings changed, and, and really it didn't have the availability to have it like we once did. 
But I think if I surmise the purpose behind the tradition of homecoming was that it was a great way for the church body to just enjoy a day and afternoon of fellowship with each other. And good Baptists, it was a good day to indulge in fried chicken and not be accused of being gluttonous on that day. The, right, the significance of it was good. It had, had right intentions, but it, it passed away over time because culture had changed. Things just made it more difficult to do. But I'm reminded that some traditions don't go away so easily. The traditions that we want to hand down and pass down, while oftentimes they, they start with a good purpose and there's a if you will, a, a spiritual principle behind them, and we start the tradition, oftentimes the purpose and the reason and the meaning for the tradition get lost, and now the form of the tradition becomes more important to us than what the spiritual significance behind the tradition was. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus, this morning, as, as he's going to unfold He's going to talk about some of the traditions that the Jews held on to. You see, for the Jew, tradition in that sense, and what Jesus is going to speak to in this, in this passage, their tradition that they held to were, in a sense, fences around the law. They were traditions that were established that were a barrier around the wall to keep them from violating the law of Moses or the law that God had place there, but through the years, the traditions superseded the importance of the spiritual aspect of why God had put the law there, and the tradition became more revered than the Word of God. So Jesus is talking to in this several months ago. I, I shared with you this book, and that just for reminder... This book here is called the Mishnah, and it contains all of the oral traditions that the rabbis had put in place. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rest of the seas had, had put there as a fence around the law to keep the Jewish people from violating the law. And what Jesus is speaking to in this chapter, and oftentimes in his ministry, is, listen, you have placed this. above this. You place this above this. Let me give you some examples of some of the things. And this is a good time to laugh if you want to think about it. But Dr. Mapes, you would not be allowed to look in a mirror this morning as a Sabbath day. Well, for you might look in the mirror and see that there's a gray hair there of what's left, right? <laughs> And you might be tempted to pull that gray hair, thus constituting working on the Sabbath. Yeah, you keep all you got. Hey, no oral response in the service, okay? <laughs> now, if you want to admit to this one, you can, but I don't know if you want to. It, it, because it's a Sabbath day, you would not be allowed to wear false teeth. Because there's the chance that your teeth may fall out and you would have to bend down and pick up your teeth, therefore constituting lifting a burden on the Sabbath so you didn't wear your false teeth. Please wear your teeth next week, okay? We don't want to... 
All right, here's another one. On the Sabbath, you couldn't carry anything that would be a burden, so you were not allowed to carry a handkerchief. For if you went from one room to the other room in the house, carrying that would constitute carrying a burden, so you'd have to tie it on yourself to go from one room to the other. You couldn't spit on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to rub it in the dirt, therefore cultivating the soil. All right, here, here, here's one. They had put restrictions around the Sabbath day to, to determine how far you could walk without it constituting work. The Pharisees realized they had really put some barriers around their own oral law, so they determined they could modify that fence to say, you know what, if you carry a few of your personal items along with you, maybe a cup from the kitchen, whatever, you put it in your pocket and you'd walk that distance and you would take that item and you would put it there on the ground and then you would be able to walk the next Sabbath day distance and do the same thing with another article because every place you placed an item from your home, it constituted as a dwelling for you. Now, (laughs) isn't that crazy? We do some of the same things. You see, but the biggest concern outside of the Sabbath that the Pharisees had, had placed around the law had to do with that of ceremonial cleansing, a washing. And, and really where it, where it comes from is in Exodus and, and I think uh, two references in the book of Exodus where it was required that Aaron, before he entered into uh, the holy place there to conduct the priestly things that he did there, he had to wash himself. And the the purpose of it was signifying that in order to come into God's presence, you needed to be clean. But the Jews had taken it to such an extent that the Pharisees and, and any good pious Jew were washing themselves all day long everywhere they went and washing all the articles and the cups and all that kind of stuff in their house. And if they go into the market, they, because they might have a chance of running into a Gentile and therefore be defiled, that they would go home and they would strip and they would take a bath. And sometimes it constituted that they had to go to the marketplace a few times. And so they were just bathing all day. They missed the point. God establishing that to show that in order to be in God's presence, we have to be clean, we have to be holy, and we're not. You see, they had missed it. They thought that by having an outward form of cleanliness, then that would cut it, that would be enough. And they had established these traditions. And so this is where we pick up in Mark chapter 7, the story. Mark records for us in verse 1, beginning there, that the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. Underline that statement. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs that they received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, 
Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, underline that, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the command of God. You hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. Holy Spirit, would you move in my heart? God, would you move in our hearts this morning through the words of Jesus? That, God, we would recognize that our cleanliness does not come from anything outside. For, Lord, you look on the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. Holy Spirit of God, we pray and ask you to search our hearts this morning in light of the Word of God. And then we'll turn, we'll repent, Lord, and recognize where our righteousness comes from through the blood of Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I find it interesting. In verse 1, it says that the Pharisees and the scribes came from Jerusalem and they gathered around him. Now, this distance between Jerusalem and Capernaum in the area there where Jesus was was about 60 or 70 miles. So it wasn't just a, a walk in the park that the Pharisees decided, oh, maybe we're going to go up to Capernaum. They had a purpose in going there. Obviously, Jesus' teachings, his Ministry had become widespread, and they went there with an intention and a motive of trying to trap Jesus in his teachings so that they could find reason to justify what they had already determined to do that we saw in Mark chapter 4, and that is to put Jesus to death. And so they travel up there, and, and they come there to Jesus. And, and they asked Jesus a question, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Now, the disciples really weren't the issue with the Pharisees. Jesus was the issue with the Pharisees. And it was kind of a guilt by association there. Your disciples, why do they not follow the traditions of man? What they were saying is, why don't your disciples follow the traditions that we have established, the fences around the law? Why is it that you allow them to break it and eat with unclean hands? Now, hygiene was not their concern. Their concern was 
that Jesus' disciples were violating their commands and they had no concern whatsoever about the law of God. Jesus turns to him and he says this in verse 6. He says to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. Sometimes I think it's a valid response when those who are not believers, when they're invited to church, they say, I don't want to go because there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites there. Because they've seen it, right? They've seen the hypocrite that puts on a religious face on Sunday and follows their traditions that have been laid down by man rather than the spirit of the Word of God. Jesus calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite ultimately came into English from the Greek word, whether this matters to you or not, Hippocrates, which means an actor or a stage player. So he's calling these Pharisees, as Isaiah prophesied, you're just stage players, you're just actors. It, it came in to, to be understood that in Greek theater, there would be masks that the actress or actor would use. And they would have a mask that was made, and as they were living out the character that they were portraying, they would place the mask over their face, and what was underneath was really the person, but they were projecting something other than they are, and that's what Jesus is calling them. Jesus is saying, listen, you're projecting something that seems to be righteous, but you are far from that yourself. You're hypocrites, he says. Isaiah was right when he said that you people, watch this, you honor me with your lips. Any of your kids ever give you lip service? You're saying the right things, but your heart is far from me. You're, you're mouthing the right words. You're singing the right songs. You're praying the right prayers. You're being obedient to the tithe. All of these things, but you're just giving me lip service, he says. And then he goes on to say, but your heart is far from me. How many of us understand and realize that it is a matter of heart, not outward action? Now, don't wig out. Outward action is important, right? But the outward action, if it doesn't flow from a right heart, God says it's just lip service and it's detestable in my sight. You see, you change the heart and the actions follow, right? But what I'm afraid, oftentimes we major on the exterior and we say, change these things, and we never address the heart. And what happens is we change these outward things. I call that behavior modification. But there's been no change on the inside. You see, you can educate a thief, but until his heart change, he'll just figure out how to steal from Wall Street instead of Walmart. So it has to be a heart change. 
It, it's the heart. And he says, they worship me in vain. This idea of worship is not just what we do here on Sunday mornings, where we express worship to God. For Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the what? Glory of God. And he says, you worship me in vain. It's empty. It has no substance there at all. And then he says, you teach as doctrines human commands. You worship me in vain. Kind of reminds us of what Jesus said. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when he was there in Samaria, the woman at the well. She perceived he was a prophet. You remember the story. And, and she goes to try to draw Jesus into a debate about where the proper place to go and worship is. You Jews say that you should worship in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, they had their own temple there as well. And Jesus kind of cuts to the chase in the conversation. And he says, if I can paraphrase, it, it's not a matter of the place of worship. Because the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's a heart matter. I, I do get a little bit passionate about this. Because I find myself, and I'm sure you do as well, if you're honest, of oftentimes worshiping Him in vain. Am I the only one or are you with me on that? God would that our, our, our worship, our life be given over to you with a heartfelt worship of spirit and in truth. He, he kind of turns the table on them here in verse 8. He says, not only... Do you think it stung him enough when he quoted Isaiah there? It kind of, he's hitting the hornet's nest, right? And he goes and says, listen, let me, let me tell you how hypocritical you are. He says, you're abandoning the command of God, and you hold to human tradition. He said, you have a fine way. In other words, you have a crafty way. You have a manipulative way. You have a loophole way of nullifying the law of God. You found a loophole in it. For the law of God says that you're to honor your mother and your father. But you teach tradition. You found a way around that to say that, you know, if you're a Jew and you don't want to take care of and honor your mother and father, then you can take all of your assets and you can donate them to God. You can give them to the temple. And when your mom and dad need help and you can't honor them in their life, you say, hey, mom and dad, I've devoted everything to God. Sorry, I can't take care of you. I, I call that loophole legalism. What Jesus is addressing in this is legalism. I kind of find that there are basically three forms of legalism that, that we see in Scripture that's spoken against. Number one is this, and this was the case here. Religious authorities bind people's conscience 
where God has left them free. It's that which Paul addresses when he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? And, and religious leaders impose additional things, maybe well intended, we're not questioning that, but they impose extra biblical things on their people. You can't dance, you can't, we can dance now, right? We, we broke that barrier, right? I can remember when I was a little kid, Preacher Allen was coming to the house. You remember Preacher Allen, my sister. And we, we loved playing go fishing in the house. Anybody play go fishing? I taught my granddaughter how to cheat at go fishing. <laughs> Mom was so worried. You don't, when Preacher Allen comes, put the cards away. We don't, know, we don't want him to know we're playing go fishing in the house. Where did that come from? the detriment of gambling, etc. So we impose these fences where God hasn't imposed that at all. And we miss the heart of His command. Second type of legalism that I find is, is what that one imposes on another, that which violates their conscience. You see, there are some things that I'm convicted of by the Holy Spirit that I should or should not engage in. It's, it's a conscience thing for me. But if I go to you and impose that conscience decision on you, then what, I, what have I done? I become a legalist in saying that you should. Listen, I have a conviction that you're all supposed to have shaved heads. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I can remember a day when there was a conviction that you weren't supposed to have long hair and you would not have been welcome in many churches with long hair, right? The third type is what I call this loophole legalism. It's what they did here. Here's what R.C. Sproul, if I can quote him. I don't think I've become reformed. I, I, he made a great statement here. R.C. Sproul said the major problem with legalism is that it is a subtle form of idolatry. It elevates that which is human above that which is divine. It substitutes human traditions, human policies, human regulations for the very Word of God. Whenever we serve the creature rather than the Creator, we are involved in idolatry. The Pharisees and the scribes thought that they were the most righteous people on the face of the earth, but they were idolaters. They worshiped themselves and their laws rather than God. Let me run through a list of things that, that I've seen it's oftentimes that, that we do. They have significance and we do them a certain way, but if we lose the point of the significance and they become tradition where we elevate them over the Word of God, then we've missed it. I love the way that we participate in communion here. I really do. I, I, I really love the significance of where the pastor and the um, chairman of deacons, we symbolize our washing feet. I think that's where it came from, of our serving the other deacons. And then the deacons serve the body. Did all of y'all know that's why we do it the way we do? 
There's that significance behind it. However, sometimes because of the order of service, we may need to change that. Right? Now, you're not going to get mad and leave because we did communion different, are we? If you do, then you're missing it. Jesus gave the ordinance of communion so that we might what? Memorialize, remember. And he said, as often as you do this, do this unto me. I've seen churches fight over how many times a year they're supposed to have communion. Second area. Baptism. <clears throat> I, 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 I see no specific description in baptism that it can only be the pastor that baptizes, right? And I'm so thankful that we allow fathers who are, who are walking and mothers who are walking in relationship to Christ that they are able to participate in the baptism of their children. I think it's a great thing. Expression of worship. We've already talked about that. Can, can I tell you something? When I came to Christ, it was during the tail end of the Jesus movement. And I, I grew up in a very traditional country type church. Um, and, and all of the songs of that day were written straight out of the Psalms, the songs of Scripture. And I can remember the, the big, big debate about that then was, well, they're not biblical. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't get much more biblical than Psalm 23, right? Now, I had become a legalist at that point because I had determined that the only way to really express worship to God was if you sang Maranatha the courses. Anything else was just not worship. So you can put a big L on top of my forehead, right? You see, since then I've realized and recognized that God, God really could care less about the style, etc. We're the ones that get wigged out about it. We're the ones that are legalist about it. We're the ones that are immature about it. And I'm putting myself in that because, you know, I don't, really don't jive with some of the stuff they do in the second service. Is that okay? I'm kind of in that tween years where I grew up on the old traditional stuff, came to Christ here in the Maranatha stuff, and the other stuff, and I look at the words and they're biblical. I'm like, this is a different way. But I've come to the place that it is not my place to judge what is worship in spirit and in truth. Can you please say an amen to that with me? The idea is to worship because God is worth. I'll stop there. There's so many other things. I've seen in churches where the Constitution is revered more than the Word of God. Folks, that's just wrong. And I've seen churches split over it. It's wrong. What has to be our authority? This. Otherwise, it's just a form of religion based on traditions of man. It's a matter of the heart. Let me finish this, beginning in verse 17. I find it interesting in verse 14. Here, here Jesus is. He's engaging with the Pharisees. But he summons the crowd again. 
Jesus is about to say something, and rather than just saying it to the Pharisees, he wants to make a point. And he draws all the crowd, hey, y'all come here, I want you to hear what I've got to say to the Pharisees. And he says to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a man's mouth from the outside can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. Peter later learned that, didn't he? The dream, the vision that he had with the animals coming down in the sheet, and Jesus said, eat. You see, they were missing it. It's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out, because what comes out proceeds from the heart, he goes on to say. And he went to the house away from the crowd, verse 17, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? I love the relationship Jesus has with his disciples. He says, don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? It may not be good for you, right? But that's not what makes you unclean. Spiritually, that's not what makes you unclean. For it doesn't go into his heart, uh, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it's eliminated. Thus he declares all food clean. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defiles a person. This statement, man, Jesus is disrupting their whole system. No wonder they sought to kill him. What Jesus is driving home here is that it is a matter of the heart. Those outward things that God had placed there were there to show us how desperately evil we are and how desperately in need we are of a Savior who can save us where we cannot save ourselves. Paul in Romans chapter 7, after he goes through the whole cycle in chapter 6, of saying, you know, I find that there's this law at work in me, that the things I know that I ought to do, I find myself not doing. The things that I know that I ought not do, I find myself doing. And he cries out, and he says, wretched man that I am. Have you cried out, wretched man that I am? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Out of the heart flow all of these things. I'm reminded of what James said, chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, that no one undergoing temptation should say that I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Can I put in parentheses, you can't say the devil made me do it either. 
He can tempt you and he can influence you, but he can't make you. He says, it's my own evil desires. And then after my desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You see, there's no outward thing that you and I can ever do to make us clean. Not in salvation and not in sanctification. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts by the Word of God in that process of sanctification where He first addresses the heart. One of our members is an incredible artist. I'm sharing this verse with him this week, and I said, you know, I've got this image in my mind. And I asked him, this was Wednesday, and I asked him, I said, can you, can you draw this for me? Because I think it depicts what Jesus is saying, man, out of the heart. And I want you to see the picture that Chris Reynolds painted this week to describe in a visual way of what Jesus is talking about. Out of the heart. That's our condition apart from Christ. And all of those things proceed out of the heart. That's what makes us unclean. That's what makes us miserable. And there's only one remedy for it. And that is trusting what Christ did on our behalf. Where he paid the penalty for our sin. Where he took on himself the wrath of a holy God in our place. And we trust what he's done for us. And we commit our lives to follow him. And recognize and realize that there is no way whatsoever. That we can have the hope of eternity with him. Rather than a hope of eternal separation and damnation and hell. Except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you these questions in closing this morning. Have you recognized that you are a wretched sinner? That you're doomed to and you deserve the wrath of a holy God? Have you looked to the cross of Jesus? having recognized that you're a wretched sinner and trusted what He alone can do for you by paying the penalty and price.